0: privilege to be here. Turn if you will in your Bibles to Jeremiah thirty-three. Jeremiah thirty-three. Anytime you're in a context like this, and you're introduced with Dr. Cushman saying this is one of my favorite chapters, and then last week actually Dr. Talbert basically said I'm only going to preach one half of my message. There's a whole second half that I could preach after this, and then I follow both of those in his favorite chapter really addressing some of the things that he should have preached in the second half of his message. And so I, I feel very out of place in that regard. I feel like I should sit down, let both of them just kind of tag team on this and, and we would all be blessed through it. But as we approach Jeremiah 33, one of the realities is, is that there are truths in here that I think are so meaningful for us today. But one of the things we need to do is we need to make sure that we connect them which, with the, the, the sidewalk in which we walk. You know, sometimes when we're in the busyness of seminaries, it's actually easy to lose touch with what's happening in the outside world. At times, the world seems so distant, and, it, and it's as if, if, as long as it doesn't impact our academic deadlines, it's easy to set aside everything that's happening outside of this building for the sake of the urgency that's happening inside of the building. I know when I was in seminary, sitting in essence in your seats, I was working two jobs, Loading trucks in the morning, working at a hospital in the evening, and then taking 14 hours of seminary classes a semester. If someone would have asked me who the president was, I may or may not have known, depending upon the given day. There were just other things that were far more pressing as far as my life was concerned, and they all dealt with my academic endeavors at that point in time. I think it's actually healthy to be aware of what's happening in the broader world. All of you are aware of what's happening in Ukraine. What I'd like to do this morning, just for a minute, is actually give you a visual tour of the city of Mariupu. As you watch, what I want you to to think in terms of, is I want you to imagine those streets, what those streets would have looked like last spring. What they would have looked like with people walking on the beach, shopping in the streets, children running off to school, couples planning their May weddings, the elderly sitting in parks and playing cards, I want you to consider Life within that city as it was last year, and what that potentially would have looked like. You know, there's a somberness when you see such destruction. There should be an anger that develops within us toward the perpetrator, and there's certainly an be- absolute bewilderment as to how such could happen in the 21st century. When we read those final words from President Zelensky, when he said, the city is being reduced to ashes, but we will survive. I don't know about you, but quite honestly, I don't feel much hope in those words. He sets the bar basically as low as you could set it. We will survive. That's all really that's desired at this stage. But the other reality is is that really he's in no position to make such a promise. Though he has gained appropriately, I think, international respect for his courage, the reality is is that he's relatively impotent as it relates to standing against the Russian war machine. The city may survive in brick and mortar, but its people, 450,000 of them, have already lost so much that will not be regained. When we go into Jeremiah 33, the last chapter of this book of consolations as it's set within the book of Jeremiah, that same sense of weight should enter our souls. Jeremiah was not writing in a historic vacuum. You've been studying the book over the course of several months. You know the storyline. What we have just witnessed visually by way of what happened in Mariupu is going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. The city will be laid bare, stone will not be left on stone, and the devastation will be so immense that over a century later, Nehemiah will weep when he sees what's left of the city walls. All that Jeremiah has has prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem was coming to pass. The city would fall under the brutality of Nebuchadnezzar, and there was really nothing that could be done. When we enter into Jeremiah 33, verse 1 really gives us the historic setting in which this is taking place. It connects for us, actually, the previous vision or the previous prophecy in chapter 32 with what we find in chapter 33. There's a second prophecy, and we read verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time, while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Again, if we just turn back to chapter 32, we see similar words, verse 1, and the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king of Babylon, uh, the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison where he was in the house of the king, uh, in the house, where he was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, and I'll simply add, close with this, had shut him up. That's really what was happening. Zedekiah was tired of hearing of Jeremiah's prophecies, and he shut him up, both from a verbal perspective and then literally put him in jail at that point in time. So really, the question this morning is going to be this, is how is the word of the Lord going to respond to a people that are about ready to be devastated by Nebuchadnezzar's army? As we walk through this chapter, there's no question about it. The emphasis of this chapter is on God speaking. This is God speaking to a people whose city would be devastating, whose families would be slaughtered, whose children would be taken, whose king will be blinded, and who really brought it upon themselves because of their own sinfulness. What does God have to say to a people like that? Well, God speaks to them. We see, thus saith the Lord, in verse 2, again in verse 4, in verse 10, in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 17, in verse 19, in verse 23. There's this repetition through the chapter, thus saith the Lord. It's communicating the authority of the sovereign as he inserts himself into the situation. But what's surprising to us is what is actually communicated. What we would expect in this particular chapter is this. I told you so. I have been telling you year after year after year, unless you repent, you will perish. Does it not say that within the curses of the Pentateuch? Israel, open your ears, open your eyes, pay attention. What's about ready to happen is exactly what you should anticipate. So what I would anticipate, and at least quite honestly, what I probably would have done if I were God in in this situation, I simply would have looked at Israel and said, I told you so. But what's surprising about this chapter is that's not what God says. This chapter has a particular theme, and the theme of this chapter focuses on a little phrase, and it's one of those Jeremiah puns, and it's simply this, a reverse their reversals. The theme is that of a reversal. The way that it's actually communicated in the NIV is this, I will bring you back from captivity and I will restore your fortunes. It's mentioned three different times within the chapter. We find it in verse 7, we find it in verse 11, we find it again in verse 26. So what we find is the anticipation of I told you so, but instead the reality is, is that God is going to communicate a reversal of judgment. What does God have to say to people that are being judged? Let me walk through. Dr. Talbert went through uh, seven reasons that the the, uh, new covenant is good. I'm going to walk through this chapter, and we're really just going to walk through just verse by verse. I want to walk through seven reversals that are found in this chapter, seven things that God says where you would have expected one thing, and yet God has reversed, it, reversed the flow of communication. What does God say to a people that are about ready to be judged? Number one, God reverses expectations of righteous anger to hidden secrets. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. It says this, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, and the Lord that formed it, and to establish it, and the Lord is his name, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Perhaps the most popular verse in this particular chapter, obviously verse 3. But I want to make sure that we keep it within his context. What the Lord does in verse 2 is he actually establishes himself with the language of creation. He uses words that are actually birthed out of Genesis 1 and 2. I formed things. I made things. And again, this should be, should be a stark contrast to what we expect. Because what we can expect is God destroying things. The city is about ready to be laid bare. And instead, God says, I am the one who makes and I am the one who remakes. I am the one who forms things. And then, interestingly enough, as he communicates his position to Jeremiah, it's almost as if he is a father who pulls a child close and he simply says this, call unto me. And I will show you great and mighty things that you would have had no access to. The very word that's used here in speaking in terms of great and mighty things is also used of a city that is impenetrable in verse 7. In essence, what God is saying is this, is Isaiah, even I, as I am about ready to punish your people, I'm going to pull you close and I'm going to whisper in your ear a secret. And I'm going to show you things that you would have never known otherwise. Now, I I don't know about your experience, but when my father was punishing me, my father was an unsaved man, and so when he punished me, I'll simply say it never met the standards of uh, acceptable biblical punishment. But when he was punishing me, there was never a time uh, as he was uh, laying on the lashes where he would whisper in my ear vacation plans. There was no sense of, oh, Brian, let me communicate something good. There was always a sense, again, of the the solemnity and the somberness of the moment. The expectation was tears, and many times my father's voice was raised in anger. So we have a reversal here. As punishment is coming, God pulls Jeremiah close and he says, call to me. And I will open up to you hidden secrets, things that you have no access to, but I will make them known to you. That's, from my perspective, the the preface, the entirety of the chapter. Instead of responding in wrath and in anger, God responds in sympathy and in compassion, a reversal of what is expected. Second reversal that we see is actually found in verses 4 through 7. In verses 4 through 7, God reverses total destruction into abundant prosperity. Look with me at verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of the city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are thrown down by the mountain and by the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bones of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my fury and for all all whose wickedness I have hid my face from in this city. This is notoriously a difficult text to actually interpret, to walk through the syntax of it. But in essence, we know three things that that Jeremiah is saying or that really God is predicting as far as the city is concerned. Number one, the defensive action that that the people are taking is they're breaking down their own houses They're taking their own stones, and they're they're placing them against the city walls, expecting them potentially to stop the siege. The battering ram, as it's trying to knock down the city walls, as it's trying to open the city gates, the people are doing all they possibly can to stop Nebuchadnezzar's encroachment. So the very walls and the very rooftops that were used earlier in chapter 33 to offer incense to Baal— Now those rooftops and those houses are being pulled down to somehow stop Nebuchadnezzar from entering into the city. Second thing that's noted is that the offensive action of the sword. The Chaldeans are bringing the sword, and Israel is doing all they can to counter that with swords of their own. But we know in the reading that their defense is impossible. And then number three, the victims of the divine judgment are already dead within the city. Many commentators would simply suggest this, is that death has already taken place in the city, but all of the cemeteries are outside the city, and so now bodies are being stacked upon bodies, and there's nothing that they can do with them. That is the condition of total destruction. But I want you to note what God does. Reversal. Very next verse, as he begins, verse 6. Behold, I will bring it health and cure, I will cure them and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and of truth. I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and I will build them as at the first. This same God who's breaking the city walls down now promises health to them, promises peace to them. What I find interesting about this particular promise of peace is when we go back to chapter 8, this is the very thing that Jeremiah was looking for. If we remember verse 22 it's a verse I, I noted earlier as I noted that song. He says, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? And those are rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 8 to which the, answer, the expected answer is there is no balm in Gilead. There is no healing there. They're a, a point of sinfulness which is beyond repair. And yet now as we get to chapter 33, as the city walls are falling down, Jeremiah looks at their particular condition and he moves them from a position of total destruction to a position of total abundant prosperity, a position of health. He promises them peace and security, peace and truth. Which, as interesting as it is, Jeremiah, throughout the course of this book, offered anything but peace to Israel. Up until this chapter, he has promised them every level of destruction. But now, God speaks, and the reversal happens. There's a third reversal that's noted as far as the chapter is concerned. And the third reversal is simply this. God reverses sinful guilt into complete forgiveness. Again, look with me at verse 8. And I will cleanse them from their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all of their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. There's a reversal of guilt to forgiveness. Jeremiah actually uses three different words here to define sin. These are the same three words that that are used by Moses As he's on Mount Sinai in in Exodus 34, they're the same three words that are used by David in Psalm 51. They note the totality of sin. You know the words. One, that common word that we, we, we define as sin, missing the mark. Second word that speaks of being perverse and of twisted, that of iniquity. And then the third word that speaks of rebellion, which oftentimes in our English Bible is translated transgression. The reality is is that sin is all of those things. It is twisting and bending of a person whom God created upright. It is missing the mark of God's perfect law and is the act of rebellion against the kingdom and the lordship of Christ. And when you go through the book of Jeremiah, what you find is that Jeremiah is naming sin after sin after sin. Matter of fact, there are few books in the Bible that note as many sins as Jeremiah does. Just follow with me. Jeremiah actually preaches against forsaking God, oppressing the poor, rejecting the truth, doubting God, abusing the weak, speaking lies, pursuing wealth, harming aliens, murdering the innocent, stealing goods, committing perjury, following Baal, breaking the Sabbath, slaughtering children, betraying friends, and breaking the covenant. That's all. He stacks sin upon sin upon sin from chapters 1 all the way to chapter 32. And now in one simple verse, he simply says this, I will cleanse them from their iniquity. I will pardon them for their iniquities. That's a reversal. God has promised complete cleansing and total pardon. He declares them free from guilt. Again, let's just flesh this out from them in very practical terms. Imagine, if you would, that there actually came a time when the Russians were defeated in Ukraine. And President Putin and the Russian soldiers that, by now, we are aware of the multiple war crimes that they've committed. Raping innocents. Murdering women and children in the streets. Slaughter of a level that we haven't seen perhaps from a, from a global perspective since World War II. Imagine that all of those individuals were actually taken to a, an international tribunal. And all of their sins, all of their, uh, all of their atrocities were laid out so that all the public could hear. And all of us within our hearts, we would have this raging desire for what? Justice. I mean, how many of us within our hearts right now would grieve if President Putin lost his life? No one. He's a man deserving of death. But imagine if you would that at the end of that court scene, the judge would simply stand up and look at President Putin and look at those Russian soldiers and say, I declare you innocent. Your sins are cleansed. Your iniquities are forgiven. Leave in joy and in peace. Everything within us, everything within us would cringe at that moment. We would demand something else. And yet at the same time, this is exactly what God is doing for Israel. He's reversing an expectation of anger by giving a hidden secret. He's reversing the expectation of destruction with promising abundant prosperity. He's reversing the expectation of sinful guilt with complete forgiveness. He continues. He's reversing international shame with global worship. Look with me at verse 9. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all of the nations of the earth, which shall hear of the good that I will do unto them. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I proclaim that I procure unto them. Dr. Talbert noted last week that there are two primary goals within the new covenant. One's the universal glorification of God and the second is the sanctification of his name. That his name would be known among the nations and would produce a response of joy and of trembling, Would would, would produce a response of worship. What do we have here in verse nine? What we have is God doing that very thing. He offers mercy to the city, the rebuilding of the city for one primary purpose, so that all the nations may look upon God's goodness to Jerusalem, and their response to that is fear and trembling. Old Testament language which speaks of worship, the acknowledgement of Yahweh as being the true God. It's a reversal. International shame as the city is broken down. There's nothing left to the rebuilding of the city and the glorification of the name of God found within that city. It's a fifth reversal that's noted as far as the city is concerned. And the fifth is simply this God reverses societal waste into joyous weddings. Look with me at verse 10 it says, Thus saith the Lord, again shall be heard in this place which ye shall, which, which, which ye shall say shall be desolate without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, that are desolate without men and without inhabitants and without beasts. All right, what you should walk away from in verse 10 is that very visual picture that we saw earlier of Mariupu. A city that is desolate, a city that has no beast within it, a city that has no one walking the streets, all right? That's God's portrayal of Jerusalem in verse 10. Now, see where he brings that in verse 11. The voice, the voice of joy, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, and the voice of them that shall say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and for his mercy endures forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of God, while, for I will cause to return the captivity of the land, as at the first saith the Lord." God promises societal waste will be turned into joyous weddings. From God's perspective, he's already imagining the the, the, the structuring of societal life again. Weddings will take place, which communicates that there's a social resurrection. There's a willingness to have families again. Second, worship will take place. There's spiritual renewal. They'll take their thanksgiving offerings into the temple. Third, a little bit later in the passage, it speaks in terms of the shepherds once again bringing their sheep back and shepherding within the hills. Farming or agricultural will take place. Substance will be allowable again. Nebuchadnezzar won't be outside the city. God speaks. And that which is in front of them, destruction, and the mind of God has been reversed into joyous weddings. There's a sixth renewal that takes place. And the sixth renewal is simply this. God reverses a vacant throne and temple with an eternal, righteous, Davidic king and priest. Look with me at verse 14. It says, behold the days come, saith the Lord that I will perform the good thing which I have promised under the house of Israel and under the house of Judah. Covenantal language, going back to the Davidic covenant. In those days and at that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our Righteousness. Zedekiah is about ready to be blinded and the Davidic line is about ready to be carried to Babylon. But God's going to renew that. He's going to reverse that. And he's going to reverse that with a, a, a branch that is coming up out of the stump of Jesse. I think Jeremiah is probably drawing from Isaiah 11 here, recognizing that though the stump of Jesse has been laid low, the Davidic line has been laid low, there is still life there. Just quickly, how does Jeremiah describe this king? Well, he describes him as the rightful king. Make a righteous branch sprout out of David's line. The promise will be true. Second, he's a just king. He will do that which is just and right in the land. Third, he's a victorious king. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live safely fourth he's a righteous king his name called earlier in Jeremiah 23 will be the Lord our righteousness now that righteousness is attributed not only to the king but to the totality of the city so not only is the king the righteous one but all that dwell within the city will be known for their righteousness and the fifth thing that he notes about this king is simply that he's an eternal king for This is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Who is this king? You know who he is. This king is Jesus Christ. This is messianic in its context. Speaking of the coming Messiah who won't come just the first time to give his life a ransom for the people. But I think ultimately what Jeremiah is speaking of here is the second coming of Christ, when he will come and establish Israel as his, as his land and Jerusalem as his throne, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Sixth reversals. There's a seventh reversal. Just for sake of time, we'll move quickly. I'll simply say this. God reverses Israel's covenant faithfulness our covenant faithlessness into his own faithfulness. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. The word of the Lord came into Jeremiah saying, thus saith the Lord, if ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, that there should not be day or night in the season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and the Levites, the priest, my ministers. What what exactly is he saying here? What he's communicating is, is, is this simplicity. I have stated to David that I will always have a line of David on my throne for all of eternity. And that you can bank on. You can bank on that by way of two realities. One is the reality of his covenant with the sun and with with the moon. If you can stop the sun and the moon, then you can question whether God will keep a Davidic king upon the throne. That's all you have to do. Just stop that. Second way that he makes this promise is he actually goes back to the Abrahamic covenant in verse 22, and he pulls out language right out of Genesis uh, uh, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. What God is doing here is he's simply reversing Israel's covenant faithlessness. You have failed me but I will never fail you. My promises are absolutely sure. Last statement that he makes is simply this. God reverses human doubt with personal guarantees. We won't look at this in verses 23 and 24, but in essence, what he communicates is that there are those that are mockers, those that are questioning. God, will you really bring two people back together? Can you really accomplish this? And once again, he comes back and and uses and pleads upon his covenant with the sun and with the moon and simply says, you can absolutely bank on it. Scoffers will always be there, but God's faithfulness is absolute. All right, what did we learn? Two final thoughts. Number one, God revels in reversals. He revels in reversals. For Israel, all covenantal promises to the patriarchs in David, will be fulfilled. There will be a ruler, there will be a reign, there will be a realm, and there will be regeneration. All Israel will be saved. Dr. Talbert touched on that last week. Jeremiah 33 guarantees it, promises it. What does that mean for us? Well, God revels in reversals that's what it means for me. For believers, the righteousness of Jesus Christ reverses my rebellion against God. I have righteousness, I have forgiveness, I have adoption, and I have resurrection. God has made specific promises to Israel that are guaranteed. And through the branch that came up from the stump of Jesse, I have promises. And those promises are equally guaranteed because God loves to reverse the course of life I'm thankful for that because I know where I was going and I know if I stood be- before the tribunal of God I know what the crowd would have called for and rightfully so I'm thankful that God looked at me and said innocent innocent not based upon my own actions but based upon the actions of his son Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Jeremiah 33 and and just ever so quickly trying to unpack such a, a weighty chapter. Lord, we would simply ask that the simple thought that we would walk out with is that you love to evidence your mercy and to reverse what we deserve based upon your grace. Lord, may we revel in your reversals in your name. Amen.